good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be around this rotating globe, wherever you are. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, which as the times around us and the events around us get crazier and crazier and crazier, are trying to probe beyond the edge of the radar to see what might be coming and what events are, shall we say, giving us some forward-thinking clues. Uh, tonight we're doing a part two of the show that we, because of uh, one of my guests uh, had some issues that we couldn't bring him on last night, uh, we're going to do part two of what we started out to do last weekend and then replayed last night. The the Didymos story, the Dimorpho story, the DART impact mission story, because in the last three weeks, it's actually three weeks, not two weeks, which I wrote in the promo. It's amazing how time flies when you're not having fun. Um, there have been some really interesting developments. And what we're going to try to do tonight is to track on two stories that are co-mingled in terms of the DART uh, Asteroid Redirect Saga. But before we get to that, um, I want to do a couple of news items at the top, like we usually do. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, if you're new to the show, that's our URL, the other side of midnight.com, uh, that will take you to our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, and believe me, there is data to back this up. Um, unknown ships are hanging half a mile off the part bow, the continuing saga of the Derrick Asteroid Impact Mission. So you click on that banner, that will take you to the guest page, and right under the guest page you will see where it says fast links to items, click on my name, and that will take you to the section of radio with pictures where we have news. And item number one, uh, after a number of stops and starts and a hurricane and rolling the uh, stack back to the uh, vehicle assembly building, NASA has now set another date for their next launch attempt of the unmanned Artemis 1 test mission, which on uh, item number two, or Artemis 2, which will be in a couple of years, will take a crew around the moon. And then uh, sometime after that, another year or so, it will take a crew to a landing on the moon at the South Pole. But this first new launch attempt of Artemis 1 is to send the unmanned spacecraft on a long looping trajectory, which now it turns out because of the delayed launch date, uh, mid-November, uh, November 14th, and I'll get to the details of that in a minute. Um, they will only have about a 25-day mission orbiting the moon before they return. Now, this is kind of interesting because one of the objectives of Artemis was to kind of really stress every aspect of the spacecraft and the system and the management and the operations and all the things that go into, you know, taking people back to the moon. And their original plan was to have a mission that was something like 42 days in length, which is roughly twice the amount of time that the uh, Orion spacecraft can uh, uh, survive with consumables and power and all that in orbit without getting back to Earth. 
because of the late launch date and the way the celestial mechanics of the moon orbiting the Earth and the Earth orbiting the sun and the fact that you cannot have an eclipse of the spacecraft en route to the moon or coming back from the moon more than 90 minutes, the way all those celestial factors line up, turns out that the new mission for Artemis, Artemis 1, uh, launching on the 14th in the wee, wee hours of the 14th, will be only 25 days, which is not really the thorough ring-out period that we had been hearing about, and I'm going to be very interested to hear uh, some of my old friends, including uh, uh, Bill Harwood at CBS, asked the NASA mission managers, how did you wind up cutting about half the time uh, of the extended mission that would really ring out the onboard systems on the Orion spacecraft? And I'll be really intrigued with their answers uh, because we could delay it even further and then get back to a longer mission window. But for some reason, they're wanting to go on the 14th. Now, hearken back to what I said several weeks ago, which was I kept seeing these repeated stops and starts as a plausible way to delay the Artemis mission overall. Why delay? Because when it gets there, when it gets to the moon with all these incredible high-tech, state-of-the-art HD television cameras, there's no way, if they give us live uncensored television, that anybody's going to be able to miss the damn ruins on the moon. So, is it possible that all these delays have been built in so that they only get there after the capstone mission, which is supposed to arrive on the 13th, is in lunar orbit, and the Denuri mission is less than three weeks away coming along behind. In other words, does Capstone and Artemis have to be there essentially simultaneously for one to corroborate the other? And is this part of the hidden mission plan? Uh, I can't answer that tonight. You know, it's like we're trying to piece together uh, uh, all the stuff from outside. There's nobody on the inside at the moment leaking. So we basically have to do it by the numbers and look at the overall mission plans and see where things are congruent and where they're contradictory. And, you know, it's kind of like the old checks and balances game. So you have to kind of figure out by the consistencies, or in this case, the inconsistencies, what's really going on. In terms of this show, it makes for that night very, very interesting radio. Because as I was telling some of our folks uh, just before airtime, um, it turns out they're going to try to launch um, Artemis 1 on this unmanned 25-day mission uh, on the night of the uh, 13th, the morning of the 14th. The launch time on the East Coast, East Coast time, will be 12.07 a.m. on the morning of the 14th, which, of course, is still Sunday night here in New Mexico. And our show goes on the air at 10 um, uh, Mountain Time, which is midnight Eastern Time, which is seven minutes before the launch, T minus zero. So we will know in the count leading up to launch by the time we come on the air that night, whether there's going to be a live mission attempt down to the last few minutes of the what they call the uh, terminal count, 
or whether they have some other problem which crops up with probably hydrogen and fueling and quick disconnects and all that, and they're going to wave off. So by the time we come on the air that night, I'll be able to say at the top of the show, either the countdown is in progress, in which case we will go to the Cape Live and we'll track through uh, the interesting events of getting this thing off the ground, or I will come on and I will say, no, there has been another wave off and they are working on a rescheduled date. So that will be the middle of November, which is about a month from tonight. Item number two. Um, remember, there's more than one horse in this return to the moon horse race. There's the NASA Artemis program, which of course is run by the US government, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And as part of the Artemis program, there are government components, which is the SLS, the Space Launch System. There is the Orion spacecraft, uh, which is built by um, uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, there is, I'm sorry, Boeing. There is the um, uh, service module, which is built by the European Space Agency. And on, in terms of mission number three, which will be the first effort by Artemis to land human beings, Americans again on the moon, targeted now for 2025, Elon Musk is in the mix because NASA gave him a contract to create the lunar lander that will take the crew from lunar orbit in their Artemis Orion spacecraft down to the moon's surface, and that's going to be one of uh, his variants of the so-called Starship. Well, apropos of that, this past week, the world's first civilian space tourist, an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who made, you know, mucho bucks uh, doing uh, uh, computer stuff, uh, Dennis Tito, who, remember, bought for $20 million plus a private tourist flight to the International Space Station some years ago to the Russian segment, he has now signed up for an unknown amount of money to SpaceX to be the second tourist flight or on the second tourist flight around the moon sometime after the Artemis um, three landing. And that opens up all kinds of things. Uh, it's going to be him, his wife, and 10 other uh, tourists on this second flight. As you know, the uh, first flight of tourists under Musk's guidance will be a Japanese billionaire and an unknown uh, number and uh, uh, population of other tourists who are going to be paying their own way to take their first journey around the moon. Again, this is extraordinarily opening and democratic because all of these folks with all those eyeballs and all those cameras and all those binoculars and all those means of high-tech digital recording, there's no way they cannot see from a 125-mile orbit around the moon, which is what that story number two specifically describes for Dennis Tito's flight. There's no way they can't see the ruins, particularly um, on the far side of the moon, which is much better preserved than the near side. This is all auguring remarkable things in terms of a transformation of human consciousness as to who we are, what we're all doing in this place, what our real history has been, you know, what has been suppressed for 
you know, half a century ever since NASA started going to the moon, even before that with unmanned missions, it's all going to hit the uh, proverbial rotating kitchen appliance in the next few years, if not the next few weeks. If, in fact, the imagery from Capstone and Denuri and Artemis One of the moon, the close-ups of the moon, are honest and uncensored, which in this day and age when anybody for $30 million can send a private mission to orbit the moon is kind of probably in the cards. It's not going to be possible for these guys to um, keep everything kind of on the QT for very much longer, which means we are about to undergo the most extraordinary expansion of human consciousness, certainly in our lifetimes, probably in the lifetime of the human uh, species here on Earth since way back when, when things began in a very non-historical fashion, contrary to the history which we have been fed. On that note, item number three, and this, of course, is the substance now of what we're going to be talking about tonight. NASA did something three weeks ago which had two dramatic effects, and so we're going to be talking with our guests and panelists tonight about both of these effects. One is they slammed a spacecraft into this asteroid orbiting a much bigger asteroid about 7 million miles away from Earth the night of the impact, and it had spectacular effects. I mean, really spectacular effects, which according to the agency itself were totally unmodeled. It exceeded all their expectations and we'll be going through the details uh, momentarily. If you look at item number three, this is video put together from the still images that were taken by the Italian little sub-satellite that the DART spacecraft kind of tossed out the trunk several days before their own impact. And it was a little CubeSat with its own independent solar power and batteries and cameras and radios and command and control and all that. And it took pictures from a standoff distance of the impact. It then flew by itself a few minutes later and then continued on looking backward, taking lots and lots of pictures as it receded from the um, uh, site of the impact. And they've been downlinking at literally phone-in, you know, dial-up rates because of the limited radio bandwidth on this little CubeSat. For the last several weeks, they've been basically sending down to Earth the remarkable sequence of imagery. So what we're seeing is only a few frames that will ultimately, I think, be uh, composited into a smooth, high-motion, high-resolution video sequence. So we'll see from before impact and then after impact, and then way after impact, and we can square that from different angles of looking at the post-impact system from the Earth, from Earth observatories, and all of that will kind of fill in many of the gaps now in the official story. Um, so without further ado, why don't I introduce my guest tonight? Because uh, for that, you wanna go back up to the banner on the uh, guest page and click on where it says Fast Links to Bios. Uh, we've got Andrew Curry with us, who is, as you know, a uh, storyboard artist. Um, he's worked uh, in murals in schools, community centers. He's a graphic designer. He works in Hollywood. He works for large and small Canadian companies 
in television and film and commercial TV advertising, and he has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of British Columbia. So, Andrew, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, Richard. Thank you for having us again and having me. Okay. Uh, we've also got Robert Morningstar with us from New York City. Uh, Robert has a remarkable background. He's a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, computer imaging. He's a graduate of the Power Memorial Academy and was a regional state scholar at Fordham University, where he received a degree in psychology. Um, and while at Fordham in 69, he participated as a research fellow in a U.S. Navy-sponsored program to develop artificial intelligence. He's an expert in Chinese. He's an FAA-licensed private pilot with some remarkable stories there. He's also the current publisher and editor of the UFO Spotlight and UFO Digest. And he's basically a civilian space intelligence analyst. So without further ado, Robert, welcome back also to The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you, Richard. Great to be here. Looking uh, forward. Okay. Well, we have a lot to get to, including some really interesting new stuff at the South Pole, which oddly enough connects to our conversation regarding Didymos tonight. Uh, do we have Ron with us yet, Keith? Oh, yes. There you are. Ron Gerbron yeah. is our resident uh, uncredentialed polymath. Those are his words. He's really a generalist. Okay, no <laughs> He's really a generalist. Um, and he knows a bit about an awful lot of stuff, including extraterrestrial archaeology, and he's therefore one of the very few experts in this field anywhere on the planet, except for those in the deep black, deep state government uh, occupations who, of course, never appear on television or radio or write blogs or send tweets or whatever. So, um, and we've got Keith Morgan with us, who, of course, will uh, have some interesting ideas from time to time. Uh, let's see, let me start with you, Andrew. Um, it's been now three weeks. Why don't we begin with what, what new stuff you have learned about the DART mission? Sure. Do you want to go to my items? That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if we go to the show banner. Everybody, well, if you're new to the show, you, what you do is you go to the show banner. Uh, so that's, go to the other side of midnight.com. The show banner will come up, and the show banner tonight says, Richard, what does it say? I'm going to go back to it. <laughs> Unknown ships are hanging half a mile off the port bow. So it's us, the EM imaging team. You tap on that and you'll find um, our fast link. So mine is under Andrew. And I've got just a couple tonight. Now, um, so my impetus for tonight, Richard, was something that you said uh, this past week. Uh, so, folks, we have a lot of back channels. Those that listen a lot will know this either on the phone or sharing emails and then fighting and then agreeing and making up and everything else we do. <laughs> but um, this new image, and if we click on my number one, uh, this is a image from – Richard, do you want to describe it? This is a, a Na okay, NASA – Okay, this, this is an official yeah. NASA picture from the mission, and what I did was to kind of tinker with it and do yeah. some compositing so we see into the shadows. It was – it was recomposited by a, a citizen scientist named Roman Tashenko, who does yes. some really good work. And so after I did some tinkering, we brightened it up so you can see into the shadows. And you'll see there at the top of the, of the large object on the right, which is uh, Didymos, which is supposed to be half a mile in diameter. 
And then on the left is uh, Dimorphos, which is supposed to be around 600 feet in diameter. You can see into the shadowing near the so-called North Pole, there's all kinds of lattice work and geometry and lacy geometric structures that should not be on a natural asteroid. And then around the edge, around the limb, you can see this scattering of, of smaller points of light that appear to be semi-regularly spaced, like there's also more geometry that is above the surface that we're seeing, but has long since eroded away. So we're only seeing a, a fraction of what used to be there. And it was uh, Toshenko's really excellent processing that allowed me to bring out some of these details. So I kicked it over to Andrew and I said, what do you think of this? And Andrew, well, you, <laughs> go ahead. You said, yeah, you said that. And then you also said, oh my gosh, it looks like a battle wagon. <laughs> and I, I was like, oh my gosh. And immediately, and Richard, you want to describe for, for those that are, you know, maybe on, on our younger side, what a battle wagon means? Well, it's a term that came from between the wars, actually pre-World War One, when Teddy Roosevelt, you know, sent the Great White Fleet around the world. And back then, the capital ships, the big ships that nations were using to square off against one another were dreadnoughts and or, i.e., battleships. And the slang name for the battleships was battle wagons. So I just had this kind of gut visceral impression that what we're seeing in Didymos close up is the geometry of artificiality, incredible erosion, parts of it eaten away so we can see the geometric interior. We can even see the kind of depth of the shell of artificiality around this former object, which I think was a real asteroid, because what better way to live in space than to basically build a whole bunch of stuff on a big asteroid <clears throat> that you then can mine under your feet for resources like water, oxygen, nitrogen, you know, various other chemical compounds, minerals. You can you know, distill them. You can make stuff out of them. In other words, it becomes your own source of resources as an independent. Maybe battle wagon is not the right term, but I got that feeling because remember, in our model, the reason we're seeing any of this stuff is there was a great, great war in the ancient solar system. And if you have a war, you've got to have opposing military forces, and those would have been in space, and they would have been whatever the era would then call battle wagons. So that's just kind of my visceral impression. So that's what I said to Andrew. Yeah, and then I immediately thought of the original 1978 TV series. It began, I think, as a movie. came out in the theaters at first, Battlestar Galactica. Glenn A. Larson, I yep, believe. Yep, I was, was just going to say, producer. Glenn Larson. Yeah, and I found a still from the show, and then <laughs> if you're hearing a howling, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear that, guys, but uh, that's my son who's about to go to bed, and he's howling through the through the walls <laughs> to try to get me to come up. So excuse that for a moment. I'm being a bit distracted. Um, uh, so I got a still from the Battlestar Galactica show, and I actually reversed it because it's it's in the opposite direction. And it, Richard, it just reminded me of this shot of the of the great fleet that was, you know, the ragtag fleet that was being, you know, headed and rescued by Battlestar Galactica. You know, a science fiction show, but very, very interesting. And um, the same sort of paneling 
that this model, because it's a model, it was a real model. They didn't have the digital effects back then that they do now. And those panels on the Battlestar just immediately reminded me of of Didymos. And not only that, but Didymos has like a knob <laughs> right at the right at the perfect like at the apex point. So mm-hmm. if we come out of that, yeah, we well, come look, out of that. Look, look, look at all that symmetry. It's like we're looking yeah. kind of catty corner at the front. Which yes. is backward. In other words, the 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 uh, spacecraft is moving around the sun to the upper right, but Dimorphos, which is a big object to the left, is coming around toward the spacecraft, and the spacecraft is moving toward it in a counterclockwise orbit. And so you've got the mothership, and then you've got this thing orbiting about half a mile away, and we smashed into with Dart. The smaller thing on the left, and I don't know how much is left of it. I I have a feeling there isn't very much left, given the extraordinary energies that we saw. But to me, it's the eroded but obvious symmetries and geometry of Didymos on the right-hand side that say overwhelmingly, if you know what you're looking at, this is not a natural object. This is this is artificially re reordered, redone, re-engineered. Yeah. Yeah, and if we come out of my number one, and we'll skip, oops, we'll skip past my number two just for the moment, and go to number three. This one's called Didymos Battle Wagon Enhanced. Again, we're using it as a as a term just to kind of ground us in the idea of artificiality. It's not necessarily it was a battleship. Uh, and what I did is I just did a quick illustration, just oh to kind of emphasize. Oh my God! Look at that. Yeah, Richard. There's like a an apex nodule. A capstone type of end to this thing. It's got panels just like the Battlestar Galactica, you know, yep. front hull. And I, I, again, I didn't have a chance to look really close at the lattice work, but you're absolutely correct that there is repeating geometry and symmetry all over this thing, and you can see the eroding decks if you if you put it really big on your computer screen and turn the lights out in your room and stand back a couple of feet you'll see all this stuff pop out just do like widescreen see, the problem on it. is that we're all used to seeing brand new stuff we yeah. don't live in a culture where there's lots of ruins unless you live in watts or harlem or someplace like that and so the idea the art form of looking at ancient eroded stuff and looking through the erosion at the underlying symmetry and order and organization and design elements it you know as, as the Boeing study said, there's about a third of the population that can do this just in their head. There's a third that can be taught, and there's about a third that can never see this stuff. So for the two thirds who can see this, you know, welcome to the club. And for the third that can't, uh, you know, I'm I'm thinking of uh, you know what's his name in the A team, pity the poor people who can't see it because it's stunning. And yeah. it has such extraordinary implications for the origin and destiny of all the rest of us, i.e. human beings, in the 21st century here on planet Earth. Mr. Yeah. T. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I know we're yes, about to Yes, Mr. To T. Break. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we're coming like to the co- It looks like a coconut, by the way. Well... Ron, if we come out of that and go to my number two, and I'd really like Richard to kind of talk about this because it's the model. It's the model of this thing, this this repeating diamond-y shaped 
model that we've been talking about that is absolutely extraordinary. Do you want to talk about it quickly, Richard? Just tell well, this what this is. Well, this is a, a time sequence video composed, obviously, of individual frames taken recently by Mars Express, which is still orbiting Mars, went into orbit around uh, 2003. It's still there. It's in this very long looping orbit that takes it about 10,000 miles away and then well inside the orbit of the inner Martian moon Phobos, which is 6,000 miles above the surface. And what they did is they they videoed a sequence by stills of Deimos, which is the outer moon, the two moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. The outer moon is around 30,000 miles away. And from their inner orbit, Mars Express looked at Deimos as it tracked in its orbit around Mars with Jupiter, with its four moons in the background, about half a billion miles further away from the sun than Mars is. And what's interesting is because you're in the equatorial plane of Deimos, you can really see this truncated octahedral or truncated diamond shape. And when when we flew by an asteroid some years ago, when I say we, the human race, it was the Europeans that did it, uh, en route to 67P with the Dawn spacecraft, they flew by an asteroid about 30 four, seconds. four miles across named Steins, thank you, and that spacecraft turned out to be of a diamond shape. Well, it turns out that all of these seem to have a kind of a common model form, kind of like Chevys and Olds and Cadillacs and whatever, and they're to different sizes, but they're in fact all of the same basic geometry, and that I think is a major clue as to who did it, who built these things, and why. And on that note, we're going to stop for a momentary pause here at the bottom of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My uh, guest this morning, too numerous at the moment to mention. Our subject is Didymos and how it could literally change the fate of humankind. We shall return.
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, October 16th, 2022. We're talking about the Didymos mission, or the DART mission to Didymos, the big guy, and Dimorphos, the little guy. And Ron can tell you about the background mythology of their naming. Um, and we're talking about the fact if that... If you like. Well, we'll get to that, yes. Um, yeah. What we're talking about is the idea that NASA did something which I'm not sure how much of NASA really knew beforehand what they were going to do. I suspect there's a lot of people now asking a lot of questions inside because the results they got were so off the wall, so beyond the various models that uh, nobody could kind of ignore what happened, which was wildly beyond most, if not all, of their expectations. So let me return to Andrew's subject with the video that he put up, because, uh, as I said, a few days ago, the Mars Express spacecraft took this series of, of uh, images uh, composed into a video of Deimos, the outer moon, which is, you know, maybe eight, nine miles across, uh, orbiting Mars uh, um, at about 30,000 miles distance, in the equatorial plane of uh, Mars itself, and it and Phobos, the inner moon, which is only 6,000 miles up, had this remarkably truncated, uh, agonizingly artificial form, and we've got much better close-up images of Phobos than Deimos, but the overall geometry of all these objects almost looks like there was some plant somewhere that stamped these things out on a variety of scales ranging from miles across to just like 1,300 feet, which is the size, I think, of Ryugu. But they basically all have this same incredibly badly eroded form. And now we've walked up on one which is only half a mile across, and it appears to be some of the best preserved surface detail of any that we have seen. And then the question is, is that just accidental or was that part of the plan? An extraordinarily ancient, millions of years old plan to give the human race a gift, a time capsule from the ancient past. And the human's response was to go out and clobber it, destroy it, blow it to kingdom come, like humans do with a lot of their history. Gentlemen, hey Richard, go ahead. Uh, yeah, there's a de there's a detail that I ran across in the tech papers on the um, uh, asteroid stuff that uh, I think fits in there. The uh, there's they have a they have a lovely catalog at JPL or someplace of the small NEAs near Earth asteroids like Didymos uh, slash um, Dimorphos uh, that they are interested in that are binaries that is just like the one we're looking at here and uh there are by 240 of them something like that on that list out of a million near-earth asteroids that they have cataloged uh so they've been paying attention to these uh, and they said they're, they're very uh scarce relatively speaking and i don't know how they do the percentages because i don't think they have full numbers uh of the uh mb A's are the main belt asteroids, you know, in the asteroid belt. There's some of them scattered around in there, but not very many. But there's one detail that they all have in common, 
all but a couple of them. They didn't, no place I saw gave me an exact number, but they said, you know, almost all of them. Uh, they are, they call them top shaped, which if you think of a dreidel, you know, the ceremonial top, that kind of top, not the kind of top that it means to me, but they're an oblate spheroid with a equatorial bulge, as they say. And they happen to be within a degree or so of the plane of ecliptic in, in their orientation. In other words, they're straight up and down relative to the rest of the solar system, just right. like the planets are, right. which is not typical for just every rock that's tumbling around out there. And, uh, you know, that could be a factor. And those lumps on Ryugu and Bennu, uh, the two that we've gotten the best look at uh, so far, are um, probably related. It turns out that the the large knob, I already heard it referenced, uh, uh, that's kind of at the point on both of them, it is about the same. They're both like 600 feet across. In other words, they're both about the same size as Dimorphos. Actually, I don't think that's correct. I think one is 3,000 feet and the other is around 1,500 feet. I'm not talking about the whole asteroid, just the bump on it. Okay. Just the bump. Okay. But the fact that they're located at the poles or one of the poles. See, the problem with the, with the dual yeah. asteroid model and the idea that when asteroids have little satellites going around, there's some kind of tidal thing going on so the equator bulges out is that Ryugu right. and Bennu are totally solitary asteroids. There are no satellites. Dimorphos and Didymos are unique, not only in the sense of a big guy and a much smaller guy orbiting each other, but the plane crossing Earth exactly so the eclipses and occultations can be seen from Earth, and two, the period. As I said to mm -hmm. Robert last week, um, uh, 11 hours, 55 minutes really caught my attention because it's a whisker away from 12 hours, which is half the diurnal cycle of the Earth. And my feeling is that this was given to us. It was specifically put together as a time capsule for whatever civilization would pick up, you know, the, the, the torch millions of years after the horrendous conflict, the Great War, millions of years ago that we've been positing. And it was designed so that we would go there, go inside, and find the goodies, find the libraries, find the records, find the video, find our history, find out everything about how we got here, which has nothing to do with the way normal history is written, obviously. And somebody decided to go out and blow the thing away, and I'm just praying that they went and looted it beforehand, the guys in the secret space program, and then turned to NASA and said, okay, you know, it's a free fire zone, do whatever you will with what you will. That's, the, that's part one of this, of this idea that they, we did something to something that's not natural, it's not asteroids, it was two ships or a habitat, a, a space dock, if you will, and a ship, uh, Dimorphos being the ship, and we just, in our first mission to an asteroid to find out really important stuff, we just banged the hell out of it and changed its orbit from 11 hours, 55 minutes to 11 hours and 23 minutes, shortening its period dramatically, and thereby is the extraordinary data to confirm that this, in fact, was an artificial object 
and not an asteroid. And when we get further into my stuff later in the evening, I'll lay out exactly how that all fits together. Uh, Richard, what might be helpful? Uh, what might be hopeful is that uh, the those things scattered around in the in those near Earth orbits. Let's hope that that's an outer space Rotterdam, you know, like a uh, ship. Uh, what do they call the what do they call the yards where the ships dry uh, dry docks? Not dry, dock. not dry docks, but where they where the ships where ships go to live out their their last rusty years. You know, they just oh, like all the Liberty uh, ships that are anchored in in somewhere off uh, where you live, uh, Andrew, in that bay between Seattle and Vancouver. Yeah, Rotterdam is is that area is the that harbor in uh, the Netherlands, and it's full of them. And most of them... There's also uh, one north of San Francisco, if I remember, up by Redmond. Or Richmond, oh, sure. not, not Redmond. Richmond. And, there's, and there's something, there's one on the East Coast somewhere, too. Yeah, but, but these the, are not uh, all together. They're all orbiting in separate orbits, so, you know... Well, my point is that, the, that uh, those ships that are sitting in those conditions, most of, which, most of them don't have anything in the hold to speak of you know they've been pretty not necessarily completely stripped at all but you know emptied out they don't have they don't have leftover uh photographs and boxes of stuff yeah but they're so not the, left uh, as time capsules the, the, the yeah i know the metaphor it, it, the it, analogy it, totally breaks down i'm talking about no, something I, I, deliberately done to save part of ancient humanity for future humanity who can reconstruct what really happened and how we really got here I'm right there with you. I'm just saying they're probably most of them are empty. So it's a matter of getting lucky. Now, I don't know how they would know that that one was one of the ones that. Well, wait, why would most I of them, why was. would most of them be empty? If, if it was the end of a super colossal war that destroyed whole planets, the catastrophe, the disorganization, the panic, the fear, the death of billions of people, God knows how many people died in this war, wouldn't have left anybody any time to do any kind of salvage. So I think what we're seeing are just derelicts orbiting where they were when the great catastrophe happened, and there's incredible stuff in all of them to be gleaned if you go back and rendezvous and go inside oh, I, and don't destroy them. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very opposed to blowing them up before we can look inside. I, <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't. Well, that's agree why more. I think there's a. Uh, look, yeah. it, it would be crazy if there is a space program, which there is, Dorothy. It'd be crazy for our guys not to want to learn as much about this incredibly ancient, sophisticated, hyperdimensional physics and technology as they could before they destroy something. And I think it was a handoff between the secret guys and the public NASA guys because they had a good use in terms of this planetary defender model. Which, of course, if we have a secret space program and we have control of gravity, the whole idea of bumping into stuff with spaceships and knocking them like billiard balls off course is crazy. It's obsolete. It doesn't make any sense. But again, depending upon the, the compartmentalization between the secret space program and the NASA program, there could well be such ironclad classified barriers that the honest guys are clueless as to what the secret guys really have or are really capable of using. Uh, and never the twins yeah. meet. Robert, you're being awfully quiet. Yes. Well, um, 
I have this saying that uh, children should be seen and not heard, and uh, <laughs> adults should be heard and not seen. But I'm just listening to you guys. It's um, it's an intriguing theory we have here. I think that we are gathering more and more evidence that our scenario is right, and they blasted uh, a spaceship. Well, to I think I can prove it by the numbers. And someone said to me the other day, "Well, people aren't impressed by numbers," and I went, "What?" Because numbers are the foundation of any science. It was a guy back in the nineteenth um, century, Arthur Eddington, who was one of the folks that actually verified first uh, Einstein's relativity with a huge controversial story attached to that. But Eddington is quoted famously as saying, "Gentlemen, you do not have a science unless you can express it in numbers." Well, NASA, at that press conference last Tuesday, gave us the numbers where I think tonight I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that we actually almost destroyed an ancient spaceship. And it's not complicated numbers, it's incredibly simple numbers. So when we're to that part of the show, I will lay them out and you may obviously make your own judgments. Richard, I wanna say, say that uh, I agree with you on that score, but the sad thing is that our nation has been so dumbed down over the last 40 years that almost num- it's there you might say there's a mathematics priesthood like they used to talk about the computer priesthood mm-hmm. and they have uh, put it out of reach by dumbing down uh, the the uh, people who are graduating from schools just look at the the disastrous results of the most recent SAT scores the worst in 40 years so I, and I think that's intentional and that's a very sad thing. So only people who were well-educated in mathematics can understand numbers. So the great thing about your show is that you make it accessible to the ordinary citizen who's not a mathematical genius. Well, we, are, we can explain this in numbers and we can also explain it in English. And it doesn't take a person who really is any kind of a math expert to get this. So tonight is kind of like a test. For those people at the end of the show, we will ask for responses. How many understand the incredible breakthrough that NASA gave us, either inadvertently, and because we're dealing with all kinds of dual and triple agendas now, you can never tell the players, with their, even without a scorecard, you can't tell them, because there are like dual agendas, people who are leaking under the pretense that they're not leaking, under the pretense that they're really ignorant when they really know something is wrong and they're hoping that somebody outside will come and rescue them with real stuff. I mean, we live in a very complicated time. So, Can I step in here for a minute? Yeah, by all means. Okay, if you look at um, Andrew's third image, the one of the enhanced uh, rock, you want to call it, but it's, it's not a rock. Did anybody notice the little protrusion at the bottom in the middle of that thing that looks like an airspeed sensor on a jet yes also it, it, it has it, it the same shape a, as what hey hey it's called the a same thing too. that was on the tic tac same thing on the tic tac it, anybody notice that yeah Ooh. Ooh. Huh. i hadn't uh well there's also point. something on the far left which sticks out which on a better version of this that i've got actually has some geometric detail I mean, there's so many geometric things on this. You can't tell what anything is for. You just know it's not natural. It's not a rock. Because look at the scale. If this whole thing is half a mile from the left edge to the where it goes in the shadow on the right, 
then these things are hundreds of feet across. They're not tiny. You know, Richard, by the way, by the, way the, the object that uh, Keith is referring to is called a pitot tube. And um, I want to talk about something that I've noticed uh, in the in the original photographs of um, of Dimorphos with regard to the spaceship that uh, Andrew has illustrated. It seems to me, if you look closely at the area that Andrew has highlighted in his drawing, and you look under the rubble, it kind of looks like a turtle shell under the rubble, like the spaceship is. Uh, resting on the object, yet its contours are easily discernible. It's also symmetrical. If you want to talk about it in terms of topography, there's a central valley, and there's symmetrical uh, ranges on either side. And I think that that, I, I describe it as a turtle shell because it rises above the regular surface of uh, Dimorphos before it was destroyed. And I think we should look more more closely at that. In the um, there are other photographs that are have greater detail. Robert, yes, Robert, you introduced a magic word, the turtle. <laughs> the because turtle. it's in mythology. No, I'm serious. In mythology, turtles, which most most people paid very little attention to, uh, are uh, often uh, connected with sky events. Now, what would give them the idea about having flying turtles? Well, flying turtles and, and flying saucers kind of look alike from a distance. You know, that curvature is... Um, and the plates. Yeah, and the plates. Well, you, plate. you, Ron, you remember that, that um, Native Americans had a, had a name for a continental United States before the Europeans arrived. They called it Turtle Island. Yes. Well... That's true. Ever wondered why? Uh, and remember, remember the Hindus' vision of the cosmos. Oh yes, the turtle standing on turtle. The turtle was carrying everything on its back. The four elephants that held uh-huh. on. Uh the rest. Well, of the all world. right. If we go back to Van Flanderen's model, which is sixty-six million years ago, where it was a hell of a war using weapons that could destroy whole planets, and then one was blown to. Kingdom Come in the asteroid belt, leaving a huge number of, of pieces, debris, flying in all kinds of orbits. Most of them escaped. Some of them were trapped by the sun. They're, you know, in, in, in the belt. They're in the uh, looping orbits, the Amor and, and uh, Aton asteroids, etc., cetera, uh, and the Apollo asteroids. I believe that a later civilization harvesting the resources of the exploded planet developing its own space program, decided to colonize this destroyed solar system by building on these ancient fragments of the exploded planet, which would have all the resources of the planet was blown to kingdom come, but basically no gravity fields. So you could reshape, remodel, drill, mine, use solar. In other words, all the stuff we're talking about doing now was done millions of years ago after the big conflagration. And the reason you're seeing this kind of underlying geometry, symmetry, is because these were, like, Dynamos is not hollow through and through. Whereas I can demonstrate tonight, the Dimorphos was hollow through and through. It was obviously a ship. Dynamos is an asteroid with artificial stuff built on top, 
Most of it now eroded away. That's why we see the geometry in the shadows near the so-called North Pole. But there's so much of it that a lot of it is left. And, and both objects probably, if they were set up like I think they were as time capsules, as treasure places for us to go and figure out who the hell we are, both of them were carefully put in orbit around each other as a waiting receptacle for us or our ancestors or our descendants to find, depending upon when we got back to space in a big way again. And as I said, NASA publicly very dramatically blew this damn thing up. You know, Richard, this is Richard, guys, I, I, I got to cut in. I'm sorry. I, this has been like just killing me. So the video that Richard was talking about, folks, um, um, uh, uh, Demos, Richard, when I was watching the video again and you were speaking, the first thing that entered my mind, especially when uh, Ron started the talk, was Rendezvous with Rama and Arthur C. Clarke and mm. the big – it, it just hit me, and now you guys are coming right to it. And I, I, could some of these ancient spaceships, like you say, be turtles or pillars holding up a, an entire internal world or some sort of garden that's, you know, in inner? I mean, I know this is a crazy Well, remember concept, but... one of those epic um, uh, Star Trek episodes for, of, uh, you know, the original Star Trek series, For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. That came directly from an engineer who worked for the General Electric Corporation back in the 1960s, known as Danridge Cole, who was the first serious scientist engineer to propose very elaborately, including a wonderful coffee table kind of book, that the human race should go out, hollow out asteroids, make them into rotating habitats, spin them for gravity. You would live on the inside. And then ultimately, when technology evolved far enough, think of nuclear physics, nuclear fusion, uh, etc. You could send these as seed ships to other star systems with people living for generations off the resources of this massive artificial world that had been hollowed out that basically you'd be surrounded by resources with proper recycling that you could live for hundreds of generations, if not thousands. Moving, yeah, Richard, moving a, between stars at well below the speed of light. Richard, this is an intriguing idea that an aggressive uh, race could take the rubble of a planet that they've destroyed and, and create a habitat. And yeah. uh, it's interesting, we never talk about a very important uh, heavenly body, or you might call it hellish body, and that's Eris, the planetoid. That's the size of, uh, about the size of Pluto. And Eris in mythology is uh, the goddess of disharmony, and in some people's uh, uh, legends, the wife of Lucifer. And that's something that we should investigate. I discovered it, uh, you know, studying, uh, what's it, back, uh, Starry Night Backyard years ago. I just hit it and I looked at it and said, thank God, that looks like a planet. It's a small planetoid. We should do a show on Eris and investigate that thing because it could be the the object that well, you're discussing. The, well, there's more than one. The thing is that we don't have much data on Eris. We have tons of good data now on Pluto. We know that it was, uh, you know, re repurposed on the surface. There's all kinds of ancient arcologies, geometry, things split open. There's an atmosphere. There's there's heat inside. Where's that coming from? Um, but we, we almost have nothing on Eris because nothing has been close enough to see it other than its point of light, except for its orbit. 
There's a lot of objects in the Kuiper belt that have weird orbits. In fact, there's one, I forget the name offhand, that none of the mainstream guys can figure out under any kind of celestial mechanics how it could have arrived in the orbit that it's in. Because but it's not in the Kuiper belt. Er Eris is in our solar system. Well, anything beyond yeah. Pluto yeah, is Eris the Kuiper belt. belt. Yeah. yeah, anything be No, Eris is part of the Kuiper belt. You're thinking of uh, Ceres. Yeah, Ceres is main belt. Yeah, yeah main belt. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, I, Eris is in the in the Kuiper belt, and it's I'm almost. Say, we're missing. Go ahead. Well, we're. Uh, I don't like to leave angles out. We're missing an oh, angle here. May I say? May I correct something? Yeah, go ahead. It's yeah. trans-Neptunian object. Yeah, so it's, it's in the Kuiper it, belt. Anything, no, the Kuiper anything beyond? Out, isn't it? No, no, no. Anything beyond Pluto is in the Kuiper belt. Well, Neptune is inside Pluto. Well, it or sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. Remember, Pluto's in this wildly eccentric orbit for you know planets where it comes inside the orbit of Neptune. But anything beyond Neptune is basically the Kuiper belt until you get to the Oort cloud, which I don't think exists. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay. So, Ron, you okay, what I think something. we're yeah, what I think we're missing is that uh, the uh, they could have been a space-based civilization that settled down here i'm not talking about the in ones initially that although it could have involved the ones that uh were in the war that left those battered uh wrecks floating around out there but uh if you have a uh ship whether it's a warship or a scout ship or anything else there'll be another larger vessel not necessarily as fast uh that will be a supply ship <clears throat> And the only the only sci-fi franchise that ever embraced that was, in fact, the original, mostly the original Battlestar Galactica. Uh, they always had that. You know, they worried just as much about their supply ships as they did about their warships. And well, again, we even... have to be very careful extrapolating Earth models into a space civilization, because once you introduce the idea of hyperdimensional physics and the torsion field. You don't have to mine anything. You make it out of empty space. You know, you basically construct particles from virtual reality. Yeah, any, maybe. Any size, you... any form, any shape, because you have infinite energy and you have infinite access to hyperdimensions. So the idea of mining, the 19th century idea of mining something, is kind of archaic and obsolete, and we're at the top of the hour. So I'm going to cut everybody off nicely and say that this rather spirited discussion is going to continue when we come back. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're definitely in the next uh, 30 minutes, no, not 30 minutes, three minutes, are definitely going to return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. 
To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.